Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. And welcome back. To the house of pod. My name is Kave. I'll be your host for this little relatively informal medical podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Argavon Salas. Um, Dr. Salas, can I call you Argavon? Yeah, that's fine. Can I call you Argie? No, that one I don't do. Do you do any nicknames? Childhood trauma. (laughs) Did they really call you that? Oh, yeah. Really? It's not that much fun. It's not the worst, but it's not that much fun. What do you ever yeah, it's go, not great. Did you ever have any like nickname or go by anything for short? Uh in high school, so that was elementary school. Um, they called me Argie. And then in high school, and I had moved uh to a different state, different school district, obviously. Um, and then in high school they called me Arg. Mm. You know, lots of pirate jokes. I, I don't um, like that one. I don't like that. Colder, colder. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know. Uh, I have always said to people, if they found a nickname that was likable, like I would yeah. go with it, but nobody, I mean, they, they've had people be like, how about Vaughn? I'd be like, okay, sure. But they would never use it. So why not just say Archivon then? <laughs> I mean, it's a, not Vaughn is it's, not that much shorter. I mean, Vaughn <laughs> is pretty cool, but yeah, it's just I mean, why people tried with Kave too. You can't really ka, Kav. It doesn't like, you <laughs> know, Kave isn't like long at all. Well, I think we talked about this, but I actually went by Kevin. So when I was oh, right. in high school, right. Uh, that's very so, common, yeah. Yeah, very, that was, that was my, that's the shame I will process for the end of my days. <laughs> um, Dr. Salas Argavon, uh, who, who, what are you? Who are you? What is, what is, what is, what is it that you do? I mean, that's a very broad question about like how you're going to describe a human being in a very short period of time. Uh, my occupation. No, no. Who are you? Not what you do for a living. 
No, I'm just kidding. I want to know what you do for a living. <laughs> Tell me what you do for a living. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a surgeon by training. I'm not clinically practicing right now. I work um, in a department of medicine, which I actually am really enjoying. And I do work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, a lot of my time is spent doing research. Fantastic. So you're a surgeon. You do, you've trained in the art of surgery. Can I ask yes. you, let me ask you a question about surgery. What's the, um, and this is going to get to what we're talking about today, because uh, I didn't give you a lot of uh, uh, time to prepare for this. What's the worst thing that could happen in a surgery? I mean, to me, the worst thing that could happen is the patient dies. Yeah, right, right. What if there was a surgery in which the patient died and uh, more people died because of the surgery? I, I suppose that would be worse than the worst possible outcome. I uh, yeah that doesn't sound good. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a very famous surgeon who I think you may have heard about. His name is Robert Liston, and he is the only surgeon known to have a surgery with a 300% mortality rate because three people died in the surgery. We'll, we'll talk about the the facts and what's known about the case. Okay. Um, was this it, recent? No, 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 no. This He was born in 1794 in Scotland, Ooh. in Ecclesmachan, in Scotland. Hey, have you okay. ever heard about how, in surgery? Is this something you've heard about? Okay, well, let, let, let's talk more about this and then I'll let you know. I had heard about a case, but I thought it was more recent, like much more recent than that one. But anyway, go ahead. This is one of these cases that kicks around every now and then, every like five years, 10 years, some uh, editor at like a surgery journal will like put out like a story about him to like talk about how far we've come or something. And a, a big part of the story about him is that he was this brash, egotistical guy. And because of that, he had these massive mistakes, like killing not only the patient, but bystanders. But I looked into it. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And he as a person is a lot more complicated. I think he's actually a pretty fascinating person. So I'm actually really interested to tell you this story. And I do want to hear your thoughts along the way. So okay, let's, let's talk about Mr. Sorry. Actually, it is Mr. They don't call them surgeons back then. I think even still in the UK, they don't call them, they call them Mr. Born in 1794. And he was born uh, to a, uh, a a mother and father in Scotland. The mother died when he was, he was born to a mother and father in Scotland. It's not too uncommon. His mother died when he was six and he was raised uh, and taught by his father. His father was uh, like a clergyman and his grandfather was kind of big in the church of Scotland. I get the sense he came from some means, but it's not entirely clear to me. Mm -hmm. He went to the University of Edinburgh at 14 years of age, which is pretty wild. Mm -hmm. Two years later, he began his medical training. Along the way, he, he seemed to have trained or interned under Dr. John Barclay. I don't know if you've heard that name before, but that's a very famous mm -hmm. anatomist. So a lot of like, you, you've probably seen like old timey, like doctor photos, like portraits of like Dr. Barclay because he's kind of like famous and Dr. Barclay started to teach him about anatomy um, took him under his wing he's clearly a very talented guy uh, Robert Liston but he is the truth there is some truth to the stories about him being disagreeable he has a lot of attitude I mean, he has strong thoughts he does not suffer fools lightly and he actually had pretty large disagreements with Barclay eventually mm. they kind of separate this is a sort of a recurrent theme for him. 
He opens up his own anatomy class. He becomes known as being a fearless surgeon. And he's known as this guy who will operate on people that nobody else will. It made him very popular amongst the people, but his colleagues did not like him. And again, like I said, he would let you know if if he didn't think you were a very good doctor mm -hmm. or if he didn't think mm -hmm. you were doing the right thing. I think, look, can we pause for a second yeah. and talk about, because um, what you just brought up is still relevant today, this idea of like operating on people who other people won't operate on and whether that's the desirable trait or not. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, people bring this up, um, well, not that exact idea, but something similar when we talk about these studies that show that patients on average have better outcomes with women surgeons than with men surgeons. And one of the very common responses, particularly from men surgeons, is that men surgeons take on riskier patients as though that's necessarily a good thing. Like, I think that's how they think of it, that if they're taking on riskier patients, then they're going to have higher morbidity and mortality and whatever. And that's just par for the course because they're taking care of sicker people. But what they don't ask or reflect on at least the folks I've heard making this argument is whether that is a good thing. Because one of the things you learn in surgical training is that it is just as important, if not more important to be able to know who to operate on, who to offer surgery to, as it is to, you know, and then, and what surgery to offer them, of course, as it is, you know, what you actually do in the operating room. And so it sounds like this person was of the mind that, you know, more is better, uh, anyone comes to me, I will, I will do the surgery. And, and there are, there are real life surgeons like this who have that same kind of attitude, which is yeah. why I, I thought it was relevant to pause there for a moment. Yeah. And, you know, anyone who comes to them and is willing to, you know, quote unquote, accept the risks, they'll just do the surgery. And, um, my personal feeling is that that's not doing those patients a service because our job is to, help people understand what their options are and guide them to the decision that's most likely to give them the best possible health outcome. So offering to operate on someone who has, for example, an inoperable cancer, why is not cancer inoperable? It's usually because it's progressed to such a point that we know that even if we physically, technically with our hands can do the surgery, the person's not likely to have a positive outcome from it. They're not likely to live longer for having had the surgery. So that's when people say cancer is inoperable. Can you find someone who might still operate on that cancer? Often you can, but that doesn't mean that that's helping that person. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's going to be interesting. We're going to come back to this topic. I think there is something to weigh into that, which is at the time, um, operations and surgeries were very different. Outcomes in general are very different. So I'm kind of curious to see how you think that plays into that. Mm -hmm. But let me just ask you a question about what you mentioned, because I, I know you, you've looked into this. Is that even true, though, that the men are taking riskier cases? Is that actually I've heard people say that, but is there any evidence that that is something that's occurring or is that just what men think they're doing? Yeah, I, they're, that when people make those assertions, they are not, to my knowledge, making them based on evidence. They're making them based on their own personal experience. That said, there was a study. Um, don't hold me to this. I think it was in Japan. It's been a minute since I looked at it where they looked at um, surgical oncology outcomes by the sex of the surgeon. And they found in that sample that the 
outcomes were similar for men and women surgeons, but also what they found was that the women were taking on actually higher risk cases. So they were taking on higher risk cases and achieving the same outcomes as the men. Um, and when you're thinking about what is risky, I think you have to be thinking about both the patient factors and the surgery factors. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think that there's a great obvious way to say like, what's risky, unless you only look at the patient factors, which is like one thing you could do. Um, and, and it's likely somebody has done that, but I am not aware of those data. Yeah, no, I get it. You're not up to date on the Kyoto surgical journals. That's great. I'm very disappointed in you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in 1818, Robert Liston became a surgeon at the Royal Infirmary at Edinburgh, but, uh, again, he was fired because of his- Okay, wait, wait, but you know, it's Edinburgh. Are you sure? No, Edinburgh. Yes. But it's, it's spelled Edinburgh. I understand. I understand. Edinburgh. But you're putting in like an extra O-U-H in Edinburgh. Yeah. But it's yeah. not borough. It's Edinburgh. <laughs> yes. This is correct. All right. Well, we're going to get past that town in a minute. Um, and I'm going to get, <laughs> I know I'm going to get emails about this. I know this is, this is going to be right up there with my mispronunciation of bupropion and buprenephrine, which I have a really hard time with. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Um, so he gets fired because he's, uh, you know, he, he has a certain way he wants to do things. He believes in things. He's very ethical. You can't take that. You can't say anything about the guy. He, he follows a strict code of ethics. And if he doesn't feel other people are following it, he'll call them out on it, no matter who they are, how big they are. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. because he's good, you know, he eventually finds jobs. He does fine. He gets rehired um, and he, he goes on to, to have a pretty big um, and successful career. He, you know, eventually becomes the professor of clinical uh, surgery at College Hospital in London in 1835. And he writes some books that are very well regarded. And he really argues for the importance of quick surgeries. And he always says these operations must be with determination and completed rapidly. To put it in perspective, surgeries back then were very different from what I'm assuming you're experiencing and what you've experienced. Basically, if there was like a lower limb amputation, he would come into the room, he would, unlike a lot of other people, take off his frock coat, which was disgusting at the time, we'll talk about that. He would be one of the few people who'd actually wash their hands, not a lot of people did that at the time. And then he would have some poor schmuck like a medical student, hold the patient's leg while he removed the, the leg. And he would try to do this as quickly as possible. Mm. He was actually described by the surgeon and medical historian, Dr. Richard Gordon, as the fastest knife in the West End, which I don't think is a name you would want <laughs> right now. <laughs> but I, I've read that he could amputate a leg in about two and a half minutes, like in on average. And he's actually had, there was a case where reportedly he did it in less than a minute. He amputated a leg in less than a minute, which is, can you tell us, just, I'll ask you right now. I don't think you did a lot of trauma surgery, but I'm sure you were exposed to this sort of thing. Roughly, how much would you say a leg amputation would, would take? Okay, I would, it, it depends. If it's at the ankle, if it's at let's the say, ankle. Let's you say above the knee, above the knee. Above the knee. No, no, that, that takes some time takes a couple hours right i mean at at least an hour, hour and a half? I, haven't, I don't even know that i personally have done an above the knee actually i've done below the knee 
Um, but it all, you know how things are. Everybody works at a slightly different pace, but yeah, yeah I would say at least an hour and a half, probably, and probably more depending on who's involved and the level of the assistance and so on. Mm, hacks, all of you. Two and a half minutes. <laughs> That's how he did it. He was a real showman too, which is that kind of an interesting thing. He would like stride into the room. He would he would turn around to like his audience because there's always people watching. He'd be he'd say things like, time me, gentlemen, time me. And then he would get to work and he would remove these things. And now to put it in perspective, because people are probably horrified how quickly this is all being done. Mm -hmm. There's a reason it had to be this way. This was before there was anesthesia, but there was no blood transfusions at this time. There wasn't the right. same sort of surgical protocols. There, You had to do it quickly or the patient would bleed to death or die of shock from the intense, crueling agony of the, the surgery. So it had to be done quickly. Now- Okay, but this doesn't, what doesn't make sense that, I mean, I understand that it had to move quickly, but- if you're doing an amputation, you have to tie off the major vessels, yeah. which means you have to identify the major vessels. Like you can't just literally like saw a leg off. I mean, you can, but then all these vessels are just going to be bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. Yeah. So I'm a little perplexed at how. Like how he actually. <laughs> how this would happen. Cauterize. Yeah. How... Well, but you can't a... cauterize like a popliteal artery. You have to tie it off. So, you know, he yeah, actually, you can't just like take a, you know, like on TV, they'll be like, take a fire stick. to sure, somebody's right. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. You know, like you can't just take it to some, exactly. You can't take a hot iron to somebody's leg and just rub it around and be like, ta-da. We well, have I mean, Walking Dead would tell us otherwise, but okay, oh, sure. Oh, oh the surgeon's here. She's going to tell us what's wrong with the Walking Dead. I see what's going on here. <laughs> I got it. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I I, I mean, honestly to be fair, most of the people there are already dead. Yeah, that's right. There, hence the title. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll be honest. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that he he was known for some techniques that he like created at the time that were very novel, and unique. Like the flat, he would create like skin flaps around the bone and the way he ligated the the vessels. But I don't know the full details. I will. Mm -hmm. I'll defer the surgery stuff to you, my friend. I don't, uh, I don't do surgery. I don't want to do surgery. You can't make me do surgery. Um, uh, but, but I do want to put this. Is, it's important to kind of put this all in perspective because people are probably like horrified by all this. And it was a rough time uh, to do this sort of stuff. The, the, the link between surgical hygiene and iatrogenic infection, iatrogenic means we give it to them as doctors, we give it to them was really poorly understood when Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes suggested that, you know, uh, you know, maybe we should, you know, try to clean our, our hands before doing these things or, or not use the same dirty uh, coat to do these things. People lost their minds and they thought he was uh, they were like, what's wrong with you, you asshole? No, like a big part of surgery at the point at that point was they would pride themselves. They would come in wearing these butcher's frocks, mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. covered in nasty shit yeah. blood and guts and pus because the more nasty shit they had on it they're like this is the cooler we are surgeons the harder we work listen mm -hmm. to his credit was one of the few people i said who would actually not only wash his hands before surgery he would actually mm -hmm. take off the frock he didn't care about that so he'd wear a clean frock between each surgery 
Now, whether mm-hmm. or not he did that because he, you know, believed in the, the the germ theory, or whether or not he, you know, just had a sense of style that was different, I don't know. But uh, it, it was it was important. And and Sir Frederick Treves, who wrote about this a lot, said there was no object in being clean. Indeed, cleanliness was out of place. It is considered finicking and affected. An executioner might as well manicure his nails before chopping off a head. <laughs> Oh, that was pretty funny, but uh, so he he was he was a little bit ahead of his time in that in that regards in terms of hygiene. Um, yeah. But I mean, he would like hold the scalpel or knife in his mouth when he was digging in with his hands too. So he didn't quite understand all the the risks of it. This is all before Ignace Philip Simmelweis, uh, that Vienna surgeon, really started to institute those hygiene practices that Holmes had suggested. And and then when they started doing that, they actually saw that uh, infections fell and, and death rates fell. But this was before that. So Liston was was sort of uh, right around that time and kind of pushing the edges of what was considered acceptable at that point. He was actually the first guy in Europe to do a, a surgery under anesthesia. It happened in December uh, 1946. It was in place in the United States. It was used by a dentist in the United States. Did you know that? Hmm. Yeah, it was used by a dentist in the United States. Liston was a, kind of a big deal at the time, so he had a big crowd, and he was one of the first people to get his hands on it. And he brought it in for a patient who was getting a uh, amputation. A lot of amputations, by the way. <laughs> yeah. There was a there was interestingly, he actually did sixty six amputations between eighteen thirty five and eighteen forty, mm-hmm. which is really wild. I mean, I'm assuming these are for gangrene. I, like what what i mean why would it what i mean i, I know oh, they could have been, they could have been trauma you know like injuries from whatever mode of transportation was being used at that time um you know it could have been anything like got your leg got trampled by a cart or a horse or whatever and it might, might have been limb salvage that way mm. well at the time the i don't know if you you know this but the, since they didn't have anesthesia how do you think they would get people before what would, what would they do for patients if anything before a surgery uh before anesthesia what, what, this what is be before ether you mean yeah google says that ether was developed in 1540 but the first demonstration of it as an inhaled anesthetic was in 1846 by william morton that boston dentist i was mentioning mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so i don't think morton was there but i think someone who worked with morton came over to help him do this uh, for mm-hmm. the surgery. So wait, there's an article from 2015. Ether in the developing world, rethinking an abandoned agent. Uh oh. Are people trying to bring it back? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I haven't read the article. I just saw it. Okay. So so before ether, what do you think people were using? Before ether, I would have assumed alcohol, maybe. Yeah. So opium, some intoxicants, sometimes mm-hmm. they would freeze the uh, affected area because things mm-hmm. like that might help but something that was actually really big at the time was hypnotism so they would mm. try to use or mesmerism is what they called it at the time so they would try to mesmerize people before surgery and be like you won't feel that much pain as i'm removing your leg as you might imagine it probably didn't work that well and he you know to his credit he was kind of always sort of like had like a scientific mind about these sorts of things and he was like this doesn't make sense this doesn't seem to work let's try and find something else so he he had been trying to discredit hypnosis for a while and he brought this over and he says 
to the whole crowd. He's like, we're going to check out this this Yankee Dodge. I don't know what Yankee Dodge means. I try to look up what the word Dodge means, but I think it means like medicine or something. So they do the surgery on this patient. The patient wakes up like in the three minutes after it's done. He's like, when are we going to get started? Everyone has a big laugh and like it's like a big hit. And that's like a big part of why like anesthesia starts to, to take off in Europe at least. Um, it, at the time, it, it was something that he really had to prove was important because there was a lot of people arguing that the excruciating pain of the surgical procedure actually enhanced the healing process. That was like mm. a thought that they had at the time was that like if you don't put the patient through intense pain, then you you're not going to help them heal in the long run, which I mean, you're a surgeon. How does that sound to you? Yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> so he was he was kind of uh, I think he was sort of ahead of his time a little bit. He was like doing things like this. He had created the Liston splint and the bulldog blocking forceps. Are you familiar with those? Have you heard of those? Are those things they're still in use? Bulldogs they use in vascular surgery. I don't know if they're the same bulldog, but they use bulldogs in vascular surgery. Yeah, it says they're still around today from what I read. Outside of that, something that's kind of interesting about him is that he really, he spoke about the importance of putting the patient at ease and addressing the patient, which is something that like, it doesn't seem like surgeons at the time did. It feels like mm. at the time surgeons really had this attitude of like, you know, we're going to go in and we are going to take care of this thing. And we're not, we're not here to, to make you feel better. We're not here to, I mean, maybe this is still what surgeons do. I don't know. But like, <laughs> this is, we're here to take care of this thing. And then you're a piece of meat essentially to us that we're going to uh, take care of. Um, and he, he really put patients sort of at the forefront uh, and at least more so than I think other surgeons at the time were doing. Mm-hmm. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. He was also a really interesting character in that he was, he was, first of all, he was really big. He was six foot two, which was at the time like eight inches taller than the average British man. I don't know, maybe it still is. I imagine they're all very small. I'm sorry, my British listeners. I know that there's probably some tall British people out there. He he was, like I said, very much prone to speak his mind and not popular amongst other surgeons, but it really seemed like he was doing it because he wanted to help people. Um, again, the question is, you know, was he doing these surgeries uh, that he shouldn't have been doing? Uh, is he doing surgeries that that he was taking all these surgeries and was he loved for taking these surgeries where he probably shouldn't have been. It's hard to say, but I will say that his success rate from all this, his speed, everything else was much better than the, the doctors at the time. 
remember I told you about the fact that he did 66 amputations in that five-year period. Only mm-hmm. 10 died hmm. at that point. So mortality rate of one in six. And just down the road at St. Bartholomew's, they were sending at least one in four to the mortuary. Mm-mm. So his his success rate was much better. He mm-hmm. was known for being very hard on his medical students, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. But there were some really cool cases that, that I thought I would bring up about him where I don't think people talk about. Um, mm-hmm. There was one case about a guy named Dr. Robert Knox, who was a Scottish anatomist. And he introduced this thing called transcendental anatomy, which I'm not going to go into because it sounds like rubbish and very much not Darwinian or anything like that. But he was really famous at the time because he was involved in what was a very sketchy cadaver system, like how they got cadavers for the anatomist. And he was probably the major reason they passed the Anatomy Act of 1832, which limited the ways people could get uh, their their cadavers to to uh, to study. Have you ever heard of the term resurrection men? Mm, I don't think so. First of all, it's the name of my band. So I'm very disappointed that you don't know that. <laughs> Second, back in this time, there were guys who were paid by anatomists to go dig up bodies and bring oh, back bodies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. resurrection men or resurrectionists. Um, and it, that was not uncommon, but he took it a step further because this guy Knox collaborated with these two guys who were actually killing people and using their bodies. So they weren't wow. just snatching bodies they were killing people and bringing him bodies wow william hare and william burke because everyone was named william or or john (laughs) um so these these two guys uh burke and hare uh would go around murdering poor people uh or prostitutes or some people they thought no one would notice and they would Mm. bring those to anatomists Mm. and knox was a was an anatomist at the time studying and uh, Liston grew very suspicious of Knox because he's like, how are you getting these bodies so fast? Mm-hmm, and they're so mm-hmm. like in such good condition. It didn't make sense to him. At one point, Liston comes in. He's he's growing suspicious. Uh, he hears about a new arrival of a of of a of a young woman in Knox's uh, lab, and he goes to check it out. And when he gets in there, he sees that like this young woman is splayed out in this very weird position in his. And he's like, what the fuck is going on here? He accuses Liston basically of being sketchy. He gets really mad. He says, you guys aren't treating this body with respect. They basically get into a physical confrontation. And because mm-hmm. Liston is much larger than this guy knocks, he actually knocks him down to the ground. He takes the body out himself for, for burial. So... So, pretty, so pretty just cool. to clarify, yeah. Knox was the one who was doing something inappropriate with this body. Knox, Knox is the, the anatomist who was working with these two murderers to get fresh bodies. Mm-hmm. He was like, whether he knew it or he just was like, oh, okay, like kind of turning a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. It's not clear. Mm-hmm. Those two guys got hanged. Um, he okay. actually got off, but his reputation was pretty ruined and people hated him afterwards. Um, but let's, but at the time of this altercation, I'm saying Knox was the one who was in whatever yeah. inappropriate Knox position. Knox had gotten a body. body, a young woman from yeah. these two guys. He brought them in and 
Liston got word of this and he got word that they weren't treating the body with like respect. Got it. Okay. It's unclear. It sounds like they had put her in some lascivious pose or something. Yeah. yeah. Which mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't entirely know what that meant, but it, it bothered Liston enough to go find yeah. out what was going on. And when yeah. he got there, he saw that they weren't treating the body with respect. He yeah. knocks them out, takes the body away. Okay. So so again, there's some cool things about this guy. So let's get to his most famous case. This is this is the one that you will hear again, and now you'll have more background on it when you do hear about mm-hmm. it. Um, he's having a, a an amputation. He's doing an amputation of the leg, and he's he's going very fast as he was wont to do. As he's doing this, he cuts the fingers of a medical assistant. Not clear if it's a student or someone else holding the leg because someone literally has to hold oh, the, the patient uh-huh. down. Uh-huh. Now, some stories say he just cut a bad cut to the fingers. Some stories say he cuts the fingers off. Either way, that medical assistant gets a bad cut or mm-hmm. amputation of a finger and ends up dying of gangrene later. Oh. The patient themselves, they died of gangrene. They survived the surgery, but they died of gangrene later. Again, hygiene member at this time, not fantastical surgery. But on top of that, while he's switching instruments and he's splashing around like a knife, uh, blood spatters off of his knife, hits the coat of a spectator. Sounds like he was someone of means. That person freaks out because they've been seeing this whole bloody mess. They see this guy lose his fingers. That person thinks that they have been cut with something and they supposedly have a heart attack at the point and die. Oh. that That's the part. I, I got to be clear. Everything else I've said has got pretty good background to it. There's people who have well described it. This is the one story that is his most famous story, but also has the least like information behind it. Like I couldn't find a, a single like reputable source that that showed it. There was no clear date on on it. And it seems like it may or may not be true. I mean, maybe there's some basis okay. of truth. Like he cut like someone's hand or something. But like mm-hmm. all this other stuff seems a bit much for me. So I, I mm-hmm. don't I don't know what to make of that. Um, you know, can I, I can I just yeah. clarify when you say gangrene, do you mean a wound infection? Yeah, they would call anything like any wound infection post like surgical wound infection. They would just call it gangrene. I mean, what infection it was, I don't know what actual like mm-hmm. bug mm-hmm. it was. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I'll be honest, I don't actually think the story is true because to me. Everything else that that is talked about with him seems pretty clear. There's like mm-hmm. people who there's multiple sources who confirm it. There's dates. There's places. Here, this story, no one knows which hospital it was, what year hmm. it was. So I find it hard to believe. And my guess is because he was so unpopular at the time, he probably just had people who wanted to talk shit about him because other surgeons yeah, did not mm-hmm. like him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and actually, you know, like I said, he, his mortality rate was better. Actually, I told you mortality rate one six, but I've also saw that he had a mortality rate of one in ten, which at wow. the time was great. You know, yeah. compared to other surgeons. I mean, even now, uh, amputations. I'm assuming have a pretty high mortality rate. Oh, I don't know that they have. Like, well, like it, for a trauma or something, I guess not for like diabetic foot infections and that sort of thing. Right. I mean, it depends on 
<laughs> how long you want to wait but <laughs> yeah well and, and i don't mean also i also don't mean that like um they're as high as one in four but i mean there there is a, a real risk to these surgeries even still right oh i mean there is risk with every surgery um i don't know off the top of my head like you can look risk of mortality for th this one study hold on let me see how Okay, so a study from um, January of this year says historical data have shown mortality rates following a lower extremity amputation have gone down, but that the five-year rates were high, 40 to 70%. Um, well, they, I mean, to be fair, the five-year survival rate on these patients is probably dismal. I mean, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I don't know what time period. Right if they were just looking at like 30 days or something. Yeah. So they did a, th these folks did a um, updated analysis looking at data from 2007 to 2018. So at 30 days, mortality was like 5%, then almost 9% at 90 days. 12.5% at one year and 18% at five years. Not super amazing, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. much, much better. Um, I, I also don't want to give the impression that he was infallible either. I, I think he mm -hmm. was a, probably a very good surgeon for the time, but he did. There are some documented cases of him making some pretty serious mistakes, one of which was he was doing an amputation on a patient. And, you know, again, things are moving very fast. There's lots of blood. There's like maybe movement of the patient because they're not sedated. And mm -hmm. during this surgery, he removed both the patient's testicles, which uh, I don't know the math on how that worked out for that, but mm -hmm. it is horrifying. There's another story I read about him where a patient came in as a child and had a neck mass. And the, uh, you know, the, the, one of the doctors that had referred him was like, oh, I think this is a, I think this is a blood vessel of some sort. And he's like, mm. it's nonsense. I've never seen a blood vessel or an aneurysm in a patient this young watch. And he pulls out a <laughs> knife from his coat to stab it, no, to release the pus. No. Uh, unfortunately it was in, in, in a blood vessel and the child exsanguinated no. or bled out and died. So, oh no. So he's not perfect. <laughs> He's not, he's not, a, he's not perfect. <laughs> he's not perfect. But I do think it's an interesting case because he is this guy who probably was for the time. Uh, I mean, for, for now, it is like, you know, obviously now he'd be a monster. He'd be a serial killer. But at the time, uh, he was, he was actually much better than that one story he's famous for really uh, shows. So I think it's a really interesting guy. And it makes me wonder too, like a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, what people are going to be saying about the things that you and I are doing and, and how they'll be ridiculing us. And I hope they are. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> hope they are. Um, I mean, I just I, hope there's still a human race in a couple hundred years. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty ballsy of me to even assume <laughs> that we're, we're going to be around <laughs> But I do wonder, it makes me, I mean, what I do, I do a lot of colonoscopies and endoscopies, mm -hmm. putting tubes into people. And I have no doubt that in a hundred, I hope, <laughs> I really, really <laughs> hope that in a hundred years, 
that like people look back upon me and like what a fucking asshole that guy was <laughs> what what was he doing and yeah. I, I wish I, I would defend myself and say I didn't have any other options it's the best thing I had at the time um, right but uh it does make me wonder and I it, it, that's the one thing about uh why it'd be fun to live like for extraordinarily like long lengths of time mm-hmm. is just to see that sort of stuff. I would love yeah. to see what happens. What do you, what's your guess? What's that one thing in medicine you think will change dramatically? I know it's impossible because it's something that you probably came to see coming. Okay, what, my dream, my, my not dream, but one idea I had when I was a resident was that we should develop some sort of device that basically can zap the appendix and the gallbladder in utero so that no one gets appendicitis and no one gets cholecystitis or cholangitis or any of that. Just nip it in the bud before they're even born with like some sort of laser-based surgery. Mm, mm, (laughs) Oh, I like it. I like, (laughs) like people will be like, can you believe people used to walk around with an appendix? Yes. Animals. Exactly. I mean, it's like you're just walking around and at any moment, the appendix could just be like, we're done. We need emergency surgery. Forget whatever was on your schedule for today, tomorrow, the next day. Right. Like what? That's so weird. And same with the gallbladder. You're not buying the importance of the appendix as a potentially an immune immunological that helps you see different things and sense different things and create. I don't know if I mean, maybe I'm wrong and maybe it'll just be the gallbladder that we try to get rid of. It's, that's great. I've never heard anyone say just take out the gallbladder in birth. Yeah, no, that's, hey, listen, I'm laughing now, but my great grandkids <laughs> will one day be like, oh my God, remember that? Remember in the past, that story we heard about the guy who had to have his gallbladder removed? Ugh, I mean, the thing weird. is, if you think about like the volume of appendicitis and cholecystitis in this, in the world, yeah. but you know, we're in the US, but even if you think about in the US and the number of people who end up having to take off work, find someone to care for their kids, cancel their travel plans, have surgery while they're on vacation and their insurance doesn't cover it, whatever. All of that is just so disruptive. And unless there's some reason to have these organs or parts of our bodies, I don't see why we should have them. And especially, but only of course, if it's, everything has risk. So it would have to be a very, very safe procedure. Otherwise yeah. it's not, it doesn't make sense, right? Because not everybody has appendicitis and not everybody has cholecystitis. So, you know, you can't justify taking out everybody's gallbladder and their appendix if it's only gonna, if it's gonna bring on risk that exceeds the risk of them actually getting appendicitis or cholecystitis. You have to, you know, have a safe enough procedure that sure, it makes right. sense to do. I, I, you could convince me more of the appendix. Um, I don't totally <laughs> buy the immune like I mean, it probably does have some sort of immune function helps you like uh, register certain things that you come across and help you prepare for those in the future. Um, But uh, a little more reluctant to remove the gallbladder. Um, Hmm. I I just I mean, I feel feel like you could lead to a lot of diarrhea in a lot of patients, a lot of dumping a bile constantly. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Argavon, it stores bile. Yeah, but show some but, respect for the gallbladder. You know, a little drip, drip bile all day long. Never heard anybody. Don't you think we're? I I think it's going to be not. I mean, I hate to tell you this, but I think the future is non-surgical. Like it has to be like you know, like I think like I mean, it, like it's so funny to me when people talk about like uh, the vaccines or gene therapy. I'm like, I wish, I, I wish, <laughs> I, I wish. I know, I wish you the, had 
I wish we had really like real therapy. good, yeah, mm-hmm. gene therapy. That's mm-hmm. like the way to go, man. Um, yeah. Anyways, all right. So that's the story of Robert Liston, the surgeon from Scotland who okay, but you're three saying patients in three people in one surgery. But you're saying you don't even believe that. I don't believe. It. I don't really believe it. I can't prove it or disprove it. It's one of those stories that's that's so common. It's so accepted that you will see like people of some you know surgical like renown talk about it very confidently but i couldn't find any real evidence that it happened i'm not like a, a journalist mm-hmm. or anything so i'm sure somebody mm-hmm. else out there can but um and maybe some listener will will find something for me and that would be cool um mm-hmm. i just i it, the whole thing just doesn't totally check out to me the part that really threw me on the story was the guy dying of a heart attack I mean, you know, that's like such an old wives' tale. Like you mm-hmm. get scared so much that you have a heart attack. You know, those stories like the the young mm-hmm. person who like, you know, gets so scared that they die or their hair turns white or something. You know what I mean? Right. That that's the part that just doesn't sit with me um in a realistic way. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to know. We weren't there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very it's possible that if he cut off some guy's balls, I think it's very possible he cut some guy's hand at some point during the story. Yeah, that's a wild story. Yeah. And that one's supposedly true. So anyways. All right. Uh, Argamon, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, tell people where they can find you if you want them to. <laughs> yeah. Um, they can find me on Twitter or on Instagram or on TikTok. Just search my name. Show yeah. And you're great on all those sites. So I recommend you do that. Can you spell your name for everyone? Oh, sure. A-R-G-H-A-V as in Victor. A-N as in Nancy is my first name. Argavon. Last name is Solace. S as in Sam. A-L-L-E. S as in Sam. All right. Uh, And for us, if you haven't already, please rate and review us at iTunes. Uh, Appreciate that. And uh, follow me if you want on Twitter or whatever. Or don't. I don't know. Just listen to the show. Argavon, thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Go nuts. Go nuts. <laughs> That's cool. We went to the same high school. We didn't know each other, in case you're wondering. Anyways, bye-bye. That's enough. Bye-bye. That's enough show for today. Bye. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.